Hi there. This is Sarah's great aunt Nancy. This week on the show, NPR political reporter Asma Khaled and All Things Considered host Mary Louise Kelly. All right, let's start the show. From NPR, I'm Sarah McCammon in for Sam Sanders. He's on vacation somewhere. It's been a minute. Each week we start with a different song. And before we explain this one, I want to say hi to our guest today. As my great aunt Nancy said, here in the studio with me in Washington, D.C., All Things Considered host Mary Louise Kelly. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks. My pleasure. And on the line from Boston, my old friend from the Washington (laughs) desk here at NPR, political correspondent Asma Khalid. Hi, Asma. Hey, Sarah. So to explain the song that we're hearing, this is Digital Witness by St. Vincent. She's one of the headliners at the Coachella Music Festival taking place in Indio, California this weekend. It's good stuff. The festival is in the news this week, though, for an interesting reason. The organizers behind it are being sued by another music festival called the Sold Out Music Festival in Portland, Oregon, over something known as a radius clause, which honestly I had never heard of until this week. No. no. So a radius clause is something that's apparently common with big music festivals. If you're an artist and you sign up to play Coachella, for instance, you have to agree that you won't appear at any other live concert within about 1,300 miles of Indio, California. And that's for a five-month period that started back in December and goes until May. Uh, and apparently that, that area includes like five states. So feels like kind of a lot. But this It's a fe- very specific number, too, 1,300 miles. Right. I wonder how they got to that. Yeah. But this festival in Portland wanted some of the same acts this month. And as a result, they filed this federal lawsuit. It's been making some of the music news. So we'll see what happens. But if you're within that radius and you want to see St. Vincent or First Aid Kit or David Byrne or The Weeknd or a bunch of other bands playing at Coachella, Coachella is your only option. Okay, to begin, we're each going to describe how the week of news felt to us in three words. Asma, you're first. Ooh, okay. So my three words are don't log in. Mm. <laughs> Wise words. <laughs> Which I would say describes how you literally could have avoided any data privacy problems with Facebook if you just didn't log in, quite literally. But it's also how I felt about kind of the news madness this week, right? It's like every time I opened up my Twitter or I logged in to email, I was inundated with crazy news. And so I had this sense that, you know, like one day it was Paul Ryan resigning, the next day it's James Comey's book. That, that when the news gets so crazy, if if you really just don't want to deal, when you can't deal with it because it becomes so much, you just really just don't log in. Sounds like a great option, Asma, unless you know, like, you happen to be <laughs> a journalist. Unless you're a journalist. <laughs> exactly. So it's sort of comical. It's like my aspiration. So that brings me to something else, you know, besides the really big important issues at stake here, like privacy and the future of tech and the future of, you know, democracy. It was really kind of entertaining to watch some of these members of Congress this week during the hearings with Mark Zuckerberg on Capitol Hill, you know, grappling with this platform that honestly my 93-year-old grandfather is using and my great-aunt Nancy, I'm not going to mention her age, but she's using it too. It was clear that not everyone, though, was was totally up to speed. Well, here's my take on that. I've been interviewing members of Congress all week, you know, who've been in these hearings and who were going to be questioning Mark Zuckerberg. And every single one of them I asked, do you use Facebook? Have you mm-hmm. gone on and changed your privacy settings or disconnected your account? And 
I must have interviewed half a dozen or more. None of them are on Facebook. Wow. They have maybe maybe a staff account that's posting, you know, pictures from the district, but none of them are on it. And boy, could you hear that. In Do they not the have grandchildren? Yeah, I know. You know, my, my favorite moment, guys, was when I think it was Senator Orrin Hatch asked Mark Zuckerberg how they make money. How do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service? Senator, we run ads. <laughs> I see. Oh, and it was sort of his first time realizing how the business model of not just Facebook, but other, you know, internet search giants and social media companies work. And there's this profound, like, naivete, I almost feel, in, in sort of the responses to how senators were dealing with this that made it feel like as as much as Mark Zuckerberg ought to be really dealing with big questions about, you know, sort of algorithms and data privacy, in some ways, he really had a home court advantage because a lot of the senators questioning him just don't understand how his platform works. Right. Which, again, seemed kind of surprising because I feel like Facebook has not been a thing just for young people for a really long time. But maybe that's less true for, for senators. I don't know. Mary Louise, you're next. Your three words for how the news felt? So I struggled with this one because every time I thought I had come up with a brilliant three words, as as Asma nodded, it's been a crazy news week and I kept getting (laughs) overtaken by events. I was emailing back and forth with a source on Tuesday or Wednesday saying it's another crazy news day between, you know, Facebook and Syria. And he said, yeah, you didn't even mention Michael Cohen. And I thought, this is true. We are living through a news environment where the president's personal attorney has his office raided by the FBI in part in search of records to do with the president's alleged affair with an adult film actress. And that's not even making my top headlines today. This is bonkers. Anyway, so I did finally settle on a three words for you. And my three words are tipping your hand, Mm. which I first thought of in the context of Syria, because the president always says, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm unpredictable. I'm not going to telegraph my next move, particularly when it comes to military action. And then we get this tweet this week, get ready, missiles are coming, nice and new and smart. Um, And we, we saw that thread run through so many things this week, the Facebook hearings where Mark Zuckerberg has resisted appearing for so long and finally came. And we can go back and forth about the level of questioning he faced, but he did sit there for eight hours and we learned a lot about Facebook we didn't know before. Um, the other thing as I was as I was just walking up here today, I was thinking about tipping your hand and what other stories might fit into that. And I I can we just note for a moment on the Jim Comey book, some A plus trolling coming out. And oh, yeah. Comey, mm. among other things, can't resist mentioning the size of a certain president's hands. So we'll just leave that there. I was intrigued to see kind of the focus also on him, I would say kind of, you know, re-explaining everything he did with Hillary Clinton. You know, Sarah, you covered the campaign, right? I felt like that was such a pivotal moment in the campaign that I was curious what you all thought. It almost felt like part of the book is about Trump. At least this is sort of the excerpts bit that I saw. And then part of it's almost about clearing his name in history. Um, The sort of fixation with explaining why he did what he did, which you know, at this point feels like old news. And I was, I don't know. Yeah, but it's, I mean, he's been, you know, in the last couple of years, he's made enemies across the political spectrum because of, you know, because of his handling of the investigation uh, into Hillary Clinton. And and now, obviously, he's tangled with Trump quite a bit. Um, on, on the topic of tipping your hand, in the discussion of Syria, let's note that we are taping on Friday, as the president tweeted this week, 
He said a U.S. missile attack on Syria could happen very soon or not soon at all. We don't know. This is one of these. Watch this space. I have been watching, for the record, all of the Pentagon press corps is tweeting out pictures of the Pentagon parking lot, which is as good a measure as any of trying to figure out if military strikes are imminent. They keep walking outside the Pentagon mm. parking lot. You know, say last night was pretty empty by 8 o'clock. They're like, OK, I think we can go home. <laughs> it doesn't look imminent. So watch the live cams of the Pentagon parking lot. When it fills up, get ready. That is so interesting. I never knew that, yeah. It's like Google searches for flu yep. as a leading indicator, only we're talking about something really something, major yeah, here. quite serious. I now have my three words, and they are on the edge. On the edge. Mm. Yeah, because I feel like we've been on the edge of maybe attacking Syria, Trump maybe thinking of firing Mueller, Congress maybe cracking down on Facebook, Ryan, Paul Ryan, maybe leaving as Speaker of the House. Then he did, of course. And it just feels like a week where a lot of really big things hang in the balance. Um, You know, you could probably say that a lot of weeks, but I feel like it feels more true this week. And, And that maybe has some of us feeling a little bit on edge ourselves. I don't know. Do you guys feel that way? I mean, it does, because every time you open up any sort of news source, it's just a constant, right, that you're constantly inundated with, with news. But to your point, Sarah, like, I also think it's interesting because every time we sort of feel like we're on the edge of a change or on the edge of maybe taking military action with Syria, right, like these things, you just, you never know. And what we know this week it may not be where we are next week or a few months from now. I mean, to, to nod to one of the other stories in the news this week, the TPP, the Trans specific partnership, which Trump campaigned he was going to do away with it. He hated it. He got rid of it as soon as he came into the presidency. And now maybe it's back. Maybe it's back. (laughs) Who knows? The point being, was this all, you know, (laughs) why did we spend so much time talking about it last year? And here we are back again. And it just it just keeps coming. And of course, the White House says that's no big change. We've always been up for a better deal. But yeah, it's it's a change. He it, pulled out. It's a change. Things just shift really fast right now, and you just kind of have to hold on to your hats. But that's like five words, not three. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, it's time for a break. And when we come back, a call to a listener in Oklahoma who says kids this week were more than ready to get back to school, believe it or not, after a statewide teacher walkout there. Later, the best things that happened to our listeners all week. I'm Sarah McCammon, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from CLR Bath & Kitchen. Which two rooms in your house get the most use? If you said the kitchen and the bathroom, you're not alone. And keeping these rooms clean is a never-ending job. CLR Bath & Kitchen makes it easy. Its fast-acting spray makes everything sparkle and gleam. From faucets and shower doors to porcelain and stainless steel. Without phosphates, ammonia, or bleach. It even carries the EPA's Safer Choice seal. Trust CLR Bath & Kitchen. Making the world a little cleaner. Hey, it's Maria Hinojosa, host of NPR's Latino USA, the podcast that takes you inside the Latino conversation. Each week, we'll take you into one story that will fascinate and often surprise you. Listen to Latino USA on the NPR One app or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And we're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Sam Sanders. Here this week with me, one of the hosts of NPR's All Things Considered, Mary Louise Kelly. Hi, Mary Louise. Hello. And in Boston, we've got NPR political correspondent Asma Khalid on the line. Hey, Asma. Hey, Sarah. Hey, so time for a quick question from the week's news for both of you. Uh, Credit card signatures. Would Mm. you miss them or would you even notice if they went away? Hmm. Okay, so my two cents, if you don't actually purchase a certain dollar amount, I feel that I hardly am asked for signatures anymore. But it looks like things are moving more and more in that direction. So it was just announced that starting very soon, four major credit card companies, Visa, Discover, MasterCard, American Express, will no longer require you to sign when you use your card. The New York Times says it's up to retailers whether or not they want to collect those signatures or not, but they won't have to with those companies. But, you know, it seems like we don't really, you know, signing your name used to be such a, I mean, for generations, right? It's been sort of like your official legal stamp. And now, I mean, other than places where you do have to sign for your credit card, I mean, where do you even sign? I mean, (laughs) it's funny. I mean, my boys who are in middle school, they don't even teach cursive at their school anymore. So their signature looks like, you know, pigeon block print. (laughs) That's what it is because they never learned to write any other way. So I, I don't know. It'll be really interesting to see 10, 20 years from now when and where you're ever asked to Will sign we anything. we all just be doing our fingerprints and iris scans? I think scans? so, yeah. yeah. All right, now it's time for a segment we call Long Distance, where we call up someone out in the country or the world and talk to them about what's happening in their neck of the woods. A couple weeks back, Sam talked with a teacher in Oklahoma when a teacher walkout was about to begin in many districts across the state. Two weeks later, that walkout's ended. As for students, many are back in school now. And this week, we talked to a listener who spent a lot of time with students over the last few weeks of the walkout, helping to make sure that they stayed fed. So here's my call, recorded on Thursday, we should say, just before the walkout ended, with Cassandra Johnston in Chickasha, Oklahoma. She works for a company that contracts with a local school district there to offer things like cooking classes and health education in the schools. I go into classrooms doing um, lessons on mental resiliency, nutrition, uh, physical fitness, all of that fun stuff. And then I'm also in charge of the food pantry there at the high school, at, in Chickasha High School. But um, during the walkout, um, I knew that I wasn't really going to have access to the food pantry at the high school. So um, I teamed up with a local college at USAO, and, uh, University of Science and Arts of Oklahoma, And uh, we've been feeding the children uh, breakfast and lunch since last Monday all the way through today. So what's what's the day to day been like with the kids there? They're Um, at at the college eating since they can't eat at school. But what what's your day to day like? It's been a hit and miss. um, But what I've been hearing from the kids is like, yeah, the first couple of days they, you know, were happy to be out of school. Like what could would it, you know? Um, But as the days progress, like they miss school and some of the seniors, you know, they want to, they're getting excited to graduate and, you know, we're going to have prom soon. And so, um, but we're not the only organization that has been serving food. There's like local churches and um, the public library has been doing day camps for the little ones. You know, the community has really came together to still take care of the kids, even though school's been out. What would happen if, if that wasn't there? Um, there would be a lot of angry parents. I mean, there's still angry parents now, but, um, it would, it would be really tough. Um, a lot of these kids depend on 
this because my school that I have, we all it's 100% free reduced lunch, and that's the same for the middle school and most elementary schools. And so, a lot of these kids depend on that breakfast and lunch. And because of the community that we serve, it's really low socioeconomic. Um, it would probably really hurt them. You say the parents are mad. What are what are the parents mad about? Who are they mad at? Um, they're they're. They, I don't think they understand what the teachers go through every day. Um, and then, too, I mean, these are parents that their day-to-day life is, their main focus is to put food on the table, right? Some of them don't have the means to hire a babysitter or maybe don't have family that could take care of them on a daily basis. Sure. Um, and then, too, uh, some school districts already have Fridays off because they can't, they don't have enough money to run the electricity and just basic utilities for that day. So they've already Wait, cut some school districts some have of, are just closed on Fridays as a rule because they can't afford to stay open? Right, because of the utilities and things like that. So then they add wow. uh, they, so then they add time Monday through Thursday to make up that time for that Friday, if that makes sense. Um, but I think throughout this whole process being able to go home and knowing that one kid at least got fed today. That has probably been a blessing is knowing that I'm able to do that. And one unrelated thing I want to ask you that we like to ask people during this segment, mm-hmm. what are you doing for fun this weekend? Um, <laughs> that's a funny question. Um, I'm actually uh, going to be helping out with the prom this weekend on Saturday. <laughs> I'm volunteering my time. Um, and coincidentally, it's on my birthday, so somewhere I'll squeeze in maybe some dinner time on Sunday with my family in Norman, Oklahoma. Well, happy birthday. I hope you have a lot of fun. And are prom plans still on then, you know, even with all the all the sort of uncertainty? Mm-hmm. Kids are still expecting to go to prom? Yeah, they're definitely expecting to go to prom, and a lot of my kids are expecting me to be there to chaperone. So um, they keep asking me, are you going to be there, and emailing me and stuff, so yeah. Prom is definitely on. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for talking with us, Cassandra. All right, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Have a good one. Bye. Thanks so much to Cassandra for that call. And in Chickasha, Oklahoma, students are back in school. They went back to school on Friday. Listeners, if you have a story to tell us for this segment, email the show, samsanders at npr.org. Tell us what's happening where you are, and we might call you, too. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Sam Sanders, here with All Things Considered host Mary Louise Kelly and NPR political correspondent Asma Khalid. Hello to both of you. Hello, hello. So it's time for our main story, and we are talking about voters. We've got just about six months to go until the 2018 midterms, something that's taking a lot of Osmus' time and Mm. the rest of ours. And we're going to be hearing a lot of stories about voters in the months to come. And we want to kind of do a deep dive this week, give you some ways to think about voters, who they are, what motivates them, and what we as reporters sometimes get wrong when we talk about them. Um, Osmus, one question I have about voters this year and how they're going to react to what's happening in the news is this narrative that there's a blue wave building fueled by opposition to President Trump. Mm -hmm. You spent some time recently in places where President Trump has been really popular. And Mm -hmm. I want to know from what you're hearing from voters and what you're seeing in polling, what is your sense of how vulnerable Republicans really are and why? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there are definitely a couple of key signs that suggest this election cycle will be a, a sort of blue wave, you know, and you can see this in anecdotal enthusiasm, but, you know, you also do see this in poll numbers. I would argue you even see this in the sheer number of candidates running, right? You see Democrats running in districts that are usually very, very Republican. Um, I just got back from West Virginia, which, um, if folks don't know, is actually the most pro-Trump state in the country. Trump carried this state with, I believe, 69% of the vote. And I specifically went down to the West Virginia 3rd Congressional District. And when I was down there, I was really intrigued by this Democrat who is running for office. His name is Richard Ojeda. He's kind of a loudmouthed, progressive military man. He's a populist Democrat. And I got rumblings that this is a guy who thinks he's got a shot. Um, but, but I mention him because I think that he's indicative of something we're seeing across the country, which is we have seen a surge of Democrats running. We've seen a surge in the number of uh, people of color running and women running in seats that maybe you would not have seen before. I was really interested in your reporting, Asma, because you've been reporting for, for my show, for All Things Considered, this week from, from West Virginia. On the other side of the aisle in the GOP Senate primary that's playing yep. out in West Virginia, how tying yourself to Trump is still very much seen as the path to victory there. Very much so. Um, you know, in some parts of the country, we we kind of get the assumption that candidates are trying to distance themselves from right. President Trump, right? That he's a bit of a liability. Not so in West Virginia. You know, the other thing I want to highlight, and, and I think polls got kind of a bad rap in the last election cycle, but I also do still think polls are kind of a helpful measure in kind of understanding macro trends, right? And the reason I mention that is like, you know, I can go out and talk to voters, but we always call that anecdata, right? I talk right. to guys and voters, I kind of think what they're telling me is is reliable. But when polls are done well, they're really insightful in, in sort of understanding public opinion. And one poll I saw recently really intrigued me, and that's from the Harvard Institute of Politics. They've been polling young folks. So these would be people 18 to 29 years old since the year 2000. And they just came out with numbers this past week that said the percent of young folks who say they will vote in the midterms is higher than they've ever seen in the history of their poll. Wow. They have 37% uh, of people saying that they will definitely be voting in the upcoming midterm elections. That compares to 23% who said the same thing in 2014. One more thing about that, and then I want to talk about voters beyond the United States. Um but, you know, one question I have about this Democratic wave idea, Asma, and, and speaking of anic data, <laughs> when I talk to Republican voters, you know, down in Virginia Beach area where I live, a pretty red part of the state of Virginia, and, and when I talked to them last year covering the gubernatorial campaign, a lot of Republican voters told me that while they had their misgivings about Trump, um, they really were frustrated with Congress. They really mm. were felt that, you know, Congress wasn't wasn't working with the president, wasn't getting things done um, the way that they had hoped, which makes me wonder if if Republicans lose control of one or both chambers of Congress in the fall, how much of that is on them and how much of it is on President Trump? Gosh, that's I mean, now that's such a confusing question to me in this election cycle, because the president's approval rating nationally has not been good, right? It's been right. hovering around 40, 41 percent. And you know, speaking with a political science historian the other day who mentioned that we kind of think 
things like the economy matter a lot in elections. But in midterm elections, it's actually been things like the president's popularity that tends to be a predictor of how a midterm is going to go, or things like the generic ballot, which, you know, the generic ballot is just the idea of, you know, if you ask voters, are you going to vote for a Democrat or a Republican? It doesn't matter who the name is. They'll choose the the ballot that they're more inclined to. And, and so that makes me feel a lot of people at this moment in time, if you look at the president's approval rating, are tilting, are, are suggesting that they're going to likely vote Democratic this election cycle, regardless, perhaps, of who that individual member is. And the polling backs it up, right? I mean, famously, people really don't like Congress, but they like their Congress member quite often. Exactly. Yeah. So, Mary Louise, you've done a lot of reporting, uh, especially on voters in other parts of the world. You recently spent some time in Russia covering the election there. Yep. I'm so curious, what similarities and differences do you see between Russian voters and, and voters in other parts of the world and here in the U.S.? More similarities than you would think. Certainly more similarities than I would have thought going in. We had uh, about 10 days in Russia in the run-up to the election, and I'm going to put the word election in quotes. Um, But it's fascinating. You know, there are very few moments in life where you get to sit down with, say, a Putin youth leader. And, you know, we went to Putin Youth Headquarters and sat down with the, one of the leaders, this guy Mahar, who's 33 now, and pushed him on why Putin, why is this a good thing, and, and is this a free election? And he said, look, there's no KGB agent outside telling me what to say to you. I can access any website you can access. You know, this idea that Putin controls the entire media and I have no access to alternative information isn't true. And I said, okay, but just on on Putin himself, what do you think of him as a man? And there was a pause, and then he said, well, you know the show Sex in the City? <laughs> I thought, I didn't see that one coming. Right? Like, where are we going to go with this? And he said, I, you know, I have watched the show Sex in the City, and I think for young women trying to look for role models, this is like a girl's guide to behavior. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to let that one go. <laughs> where There's are we going There's a lot to unpack here? there, but okay. And he said, I watch Putin, and I feel the same. He said, this is a role model for how a man can carry himself in the world. And he has restored my sense of pride in this country. And it's so fascinating to travel and to see just a really different narrative than you can get if you're sitting here inside the Beltway, judging from afar what must be going on with voters there. Yeah, that that really, I don't know if, if some of that resonates for you too, but just having, you know, covered the 2016 campaign and and, and other campaigns, um, you meet people who are absolutely dumbfounded and bamboozled by how anybody could vote for the person they don't support, you know, how exactly. any thinking person couldn't possibly come to a different conclusion. And yet there are many thoughtful, intelligent people who come to extremely different political conclusions about what what makes sense and what their priorities should be. Yep. Mm-hmm. One related story just to throw into the mix, you know, one of the key things I think we do as journalists is shine a light on stories that otherwise would get you know lost in the fray of all the other craziness we've been talking about that unfolds this week. And a story that really captured my attention about voters in Hungary. Hungary held elections this past weekend. They re-elected their prime minister. Again, to no one's surprise, Viktor Orban was tipped to win. But here's what interests me. Their last independent daily printed newspaper, which has been printing every day in Hungary for 80 years, folded on Wednesday. Last edition ever was printed. And we interviewed one of the journalists uh, on All Things Considered this week who was in the newsroom when that announcement was made. And she talked about how the free press in Hungary is slowly dying. 
And it's really important to see how that common set of facts on which we base our voting decisions is eroded in the U.S. and in other countries around the world. People people watch what they're going to watch. They read what they're going to read online. And you may be getting a completely different set of facts on which you're going to base your vote than your next door neighbor. I mean, don't you wonder, too, though, if that also just leads to disengagement writ large? I mean, I've been really fascinated and hoping to do some more reporting this election cycle on um, what I would call the non-voters. So these are all like, you know, the countless people who actually just don't vote, whether that's over apathy or anger or, you know, busyness, whatever the the cause is. And, you know, it's interesting because we always assume that that kind of when we talk about voters, like that's the plurality of people. And I was looking the other day just at a comparison of how many people voted in 2014 uh, in the midterms, and a majority of people didn't vote. One estimate suggested that 36% of eligible voters showed up in 2014. I mean, you can look at certain districts where the percent of young people who voted was 4% in the last midterm. So a lot of people just, they're they're not voting. And I find that somewhat maybe tied, you know, to the conversations we're having around civic engagement and facts and democracy. You know, listening to you, Asma, is making me think about the record number of women running. And I wonder what impact that will have on turnout and an engagement among among female voters um, yep. because it is it's really fascinating across the country. One more point just uh, on the young voters theme, which is something we really had in our heads when we were covering the Russian election because Vladimir Putin first came to power in 2000. People, the babies being born in Russia in that year are now turning 18. And some of them were able to vote in this presidential election for the very first time. People who, Russians who've never known any leader except Vladimir Putin. Fascinating. And you look at that in the American context, and I think about we're about to see voters who were born, you know, after 9 11. Yeah. coming to vote for the first time, who have never known a world that isn't awash in technology and getting all their news online. So this is a really interesting generation on the cusp of going to the polls for the first time. Time for one more break. And when we come back, we're going to play Who Said That? And we'll be hearing from you with the best things that happened to our listeners all week. Be right back. Support for It's Been a Minute and the following message come from Wonder Capital, the leading solar investment platform. With Wonder's help, individuals have financed more than 150 large-scale solar projects across the U.S., creating enough electricity to power the equivalent of 4,000 homes, which offsets millions of pounds of CO2 emissions each year. To find out how you can begin investing in solar energy projects while earning up to 7.5% annually, visit wondercapital.com minute. It's Lulu Miller, and I am back with a new story for Invisibilia. It is about the pleasures. It's just electric. And the dangers. There's just nothing more scary. Of trying to live between two worlds. You can find Invisibilia on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for a game we call Who Said That? Who said that? 
This is where I share a quote from the week. You guys have to guess who said it. Oh, or boy. At least the story it refers to. <laughs> Are we nervous, Asma? Yes. I'm a little nervous, guys. I've been traveling for work. All I was doing was reading all things West Virginia. Well, it's pretty high stakes. The winner gets um, nothing. But <laughs> Here's the first quote, okay? Marley is excited, but I am embarrassed. I'm 40, and these people are my age. Oh, that's hard. This is about a textbook in a certain state in the news this week, and this is hard. Oh, this is um, Blake Shelton. Yes! Oh, yes! Yeah! The we Blake were... Shelton textbook, the little girl who looked and his name was written in her yes, textbook, yes. which is really, really cool, except it means her textbook so is old. really old. <laughs> yes, and it was... Oklahoma mom, Shelly Brian Parker, that was the quote. It was her daughter, Marley, who brought home the book. And Marley was excited because that little, you know, checkout chart at the front. Do you remember those? I can't believe they even still have those in textbooks. Yeah, it had Blake Shelton's name on it from when he attended the school. Guys, 1982. Yeah. Time to get some new textbooks. Yeah. And if you heard the show, just a disclaimer, if you heard the show last time I sat in for Sam, you may recall that we talked about Blake Shelton then, too. Uh, (laughs) He had just been named the sexiest man alive. But uh, this is a coincidence. This is not an obsession (laughs) of mine. I just want to say that. So the next quote, I thought, wow, I feel like I'm living in the 19th century instead of the 21st. Hmm. Oh, that could go so many ways. <laughs> right? Yeah. Give us a clue. clue. Just put it on your wall, right? Uh, yeah, it's someone who became a mom again this week. Tammy Duckworth? <laughs> Illinois Senator Democrat Tammy oh Duckworth. Oh my gosh, this All really right. is bad. You know who the only person I could think of who became a mom this week was the Kardashian? <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> now Chloe, you're going right? to judge me. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just happy for you, Asma, actually, that your first thought goes to the Kardashians and not to politics. This makes me feel reassured. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth, Democrat of Illinois, became the first sitting U.S. senator to give birth. And in that quote, she was speaking last month about Senate rules that prohibit anyone who isn't a senator, aide, or other official from being on the Senate floor. For the record, a baby is generally not a senator, aide, or other official, because how could they be? She's calling on the Senate to change those rules so she can bring her young child on the floor when she has to be there for a vote. Um, And, you know, I interviewed her recently for a piece I did about how politics with this wave of women is or is not adjusting to things like, you know, moms in state houses and Congress. And Senator Duckworth said this is an issue for her because if you want to breastfeed and you want to vote, you kind of have to bring your baby on the floor. Those of us who've done this can tell you that babies don't, you know, just hang out and say, oh, you have a vote now, mom. You don't need to nurse (laughs) me. Let me me. get this done in seven minutes for you. (laughs) Right. So, you know, she just wants to be able to do this. And this is something um, a state lawmaker in Virginia is doing, bringing her baby on the floor. So, you know, more women is not going to just change policy, but it's also going to change the culture of politics, um, as we can see. Changing tables on the Senate floor. That'll be next. Oh, can you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) But big congrats to Senator Duckworth and her family. Indeed. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Uh, This is the last quote, and and this may sound familiar if you've been listening to the whole show. As he extended his hand, I made a mental note to check its size. (sighs) Jim Comey's Mm -hmm. memoir. Mary Louise is killing it. Killing it. Killing it. (laughs) Former FBI Director James Comey in his new book called A Higher Loyalty. The book's out next Tuesday. Uh, This week, reviews of the book began to be published. They contained a lot of choice quotes like the one I just read. Some really are remarkable. And, uh, for example, the former head of the FBI saying, for instance, that the president lives in a cocoon of alternative reality. 
comparing him to a mob boss, detailing his apparent fixation with some of the more um, salacious details in the infamous Steele dossier. Guys, you've been paying attention, I'm sure, to this news. I mean, yep. I don't even know what to say about it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's. I have not read the entire memoir yet. I've read the extensive excerpts, mm-hmm. and it does strike me there's not some huge you know, life-altering bombshell in here because we've heard so much from Comey already in his testimony uh, and from news reports over the last year. But to put it all together in 300 pages of print, it's it's quite a read. And then, of course, Trump, no slouch in the insult department himself, has already fired back and called and called Comey, what was it, an untruthful, a weak and untruthful slime ball. So... That's the state of American politics today. And uh, if you're already tired of hearing about it, I'm sorry to tell you that Comey is about to embark on a nationwide book tour. He's going to be everywhere in the coming days. Sunday night, he's on ABC for his first big sit down with George Stephanopoulos. They reportedly taped for five hours. Oh, my gosh. Like I said, on the edge. (laughs) Bringing it back. Bringing it back. (laughs) Uh, That concludes Who Said That? Mary Louise, you're the winner. You are the winner. Hooray, and my grand prize of of nothing. Your grand prize is nothing, (laughs) but how does it feel? V for victory. Okay, now it's time to end the show as we do every week. We ask listeners to share with us the best thing that's happened to them all week. I love this part. We encourage them to brag. So let's take a listen. This is Elizabeth in Michigan. This week, the best thing is that right now it is 53 degrees and sunny. Here in Michigan, it feels like it has just been one cold, dreary day after another for months. And so the best thing is the chance to enjoy this sunshine on my lunch break and think about the warm summer to come. This is Katie from Durham, North Carolina. And the best thing that happened to me this week is I found out I passed the bar exam. I was able to go and visit my sister in Miami Beach for my spring break. I just became president of my university's political science club. I got offered my first full-time job after graduating last May. Salary and everything, and I'm no longer gonna be waiting tables and making frappuccinos. The best part of my week was that I had the privilege and the honor to receive the Congressional Gold Medal. And what's even more special is when I received it, my husband was with me when I when they presented the medal. It's Brett from Nashville, and the best part of my week is that I am pet-sitting for three beautiful pit mixes. The worst part, though, is that I only have two hands but three doggos. So could you send some help? This is Anthony from Los Angeles. Uh, back in November, I was able to play Wheel of Fortune after four years of auditioning. And then in December, I was blessed to be able to go back home and watch the show with my family and my grandparents who I grew up watching the show with. Uh, but the best part of this week is that I just finally got the check of my winnings. So this broke millennial just really sat for a moment with gratitude and this huge check in my hand before walking into the bank. This is Julie from Louisville, Kentucky, currently in Salt Lake City. In June of 2017, my little sister, who was 43 at the time, died from what should have been a routine surgery. A couple weeks after Angela's death, my daughter and her husband found out that she was pregnant. My daughter and my sister Angela were extremely close. The best thing that happened to me this week was I got to fly from Louisville to Salt Lake City to meet my daughter's daughter, Clark Angela, for the first time.
It's a step towards our family healing, and I couldn't be more thrilled. Thanks. Thanks. Have a great week. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks to the voices you heard there. Elizabeth, Katie, Elena, Lindy, Tim, Jeff, Brett, Anthony, Wheel of Fortune champ, and Julie with the new granddaughter. Congratulations. It's a beautiful story. If you want to share your best thing all week, record yourself and email the audio file to the show. samsanders at npr.org is the address. With that, we're out of here. It's Been a Minute was produced this week by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry with Steve Nelson, our director of programming. The show is edited by Allison McAdam, additional editing by Jeff Rogers. The vice president of programming at NPR is Anya Grundman. And you can refresh your podcast feed Tuesday morning to hear Sam sit down with comedian and actress Darcy Carden. She plays Janet on The Good Place. Thanks again to Mary Louise Kelly and Asma Khalid. Bye for now. Thanks. Bye. Sam is back next Friday as well. I'm Sarah McCammon, and I'll be back later this summer. Talk to you then. Ooh.